So we're in Romans chapter 10 in looking at this little mini-series through Romans 9 through 11, and we're getting close to the end of that. We'll get to the end this month, I promise you. We'll get to the end of that little mini-series in November, and then we'll start an Advent series in December, and then we'll get back into Romans at the beginning of the new year in the really a great part of Romans, which is chapter 12 and on. So we're looking forward to that, but that's a little bit of where we are going. But so far, we've looked in this little mini-series on massive topics. The biggest theme of Romans 9 through 11 has been God's relationship to Israel, ethnic Israel, and then the Israel of Israel, which is what we've been talking about. Uh, Other topics have included election and the implications of the gospel of justification by faith alone, grace alone, in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. And those are just some of the things we've talked about. And again, the theme this morning is God is not finished. I almost titled this, I've mentioned this before, I wrestle over titles. because I just love having this punchline theme. And I almost titled it this morning, Johnny, This Is Not Your Party. I, I read a story a while back of a, of a, he was a, he's a pastor, but he was a school teacher before that. And he told this story in one of his articles that uh, one of the kids in the class, there was like a, a birthday party. And the girl, her name was Susie. And all the kids were there and they were celebrating Susie on her birthday party. And But you know how kids are. They can't stand the fact that someone else is being celebrated and and not them. And sometimes adults can act that way too. And the kid, this little boy was freaking out because this little girl was getting all the toys and he didn't have as much as she had. And and he recalls this story how one of the moms kind of got down on her knee and looked Johnny in the eye and said, Johnny, this is not your party. And and he used it as as a way of saying, we often make life and situations and things all about us, and when it's not, it's about someone else, or in this case, it's all about God, and it's all about what He's doing. And, and oftentimes, we come to the Bible that way, don't we? We read the Bible and we think, what does this mean for me? And that, and that sometimes can be a great question, but sometimes it's, it's not about you at all. It's about what God is doing and what God is doing in the world and in His people. And of course, that includes you, but it, it's not central on you. You're just happy to be at the party. And, and this morning, I bring that up because it's, it's really not about you. It's, it's about God's relationship with His ethnic people, the Jews, and how those Jews in the Roman church and what they were going through and what they were thinking about it. And of course, there are implications for us as well. But the thought then comes down to this. What is God's relationship with the Jews? And the answer is God is not finished. God is not finished. So we landed on that title this morning. I've mentioned before that shortly after I graduated from high school, instead of going to college, I worked as an apprentice Finnish carpenter. And I had no idea what I was doing. I had never worked with wood or tools or anything like that before. But I worked with a guy who was a master carpenter. And, and his bread and butter, which became our bread and butter, was doing custom staircases in people's houses. And because I was the new guy and knew nothing, my job was simple. Get his tools out of the truck, get them back in the truck, and demo whatever is there, right? I was just doing all of the grunt work. And, and I remember early on, because I would be there interacting with the customers, and I was there when things looked really bad. I was there when I was demoing and holes in the wall, and it was taking the stair down to nothing, just the studs and, 
and the, the rough treads and all of those things. And I remember it was like clockwork. They would come to me, the customer, or they would call my boss and they would be freaking out. Is this the way it's supposed to look? Is, is this how it's supposed to be? And then all throughout the project, they would be asking these questions. Hey, I noticed this over here and my boss, we, we turned from carpenters to counselors and we had to tell them, hey, listen, I got it. We've, we've got to figure it out that it's not done yet. The job is not finished. And oftentimes that, that same idea is true in the Christian life. It's common for us to look at our own Christian walk and get discouraged. And we look at the things as the way they are, and we don't see the way things are going to be, and we start freaking out, and we get discouraged in the process of our own sanctification. Or we look at someone else and their struggle, and we wonder, are things ever going to turn around, or is it always going to look like a mess? And my encouragement and reminder to you when you have those thoughts, and it's the same encouragement and reminder I give to myself, is the same encouragement I would give to those customers. It's not finished. It is not finished. And as we come to our text this morning, that sense of discouragement is in full bloom for Paul's Jewish readership. Why? Why are they so discouraged? Well, for a lot of reasons. First off, they had just returned from being kicked out of Rome for 15 years, so it's kind of like they got disciplined for a while, and now they're kind of coming back with their tails between their legs. Uh, they've been living in exile under Roman rule for decades and decades, and for centuries they had been living under the rule of the Romans or the Assyrians or the Babylonians, and the most painful of them all that would discourage these Jewish believers is that the Jews were responsible for bringing Jesus before the Romans to have him crucified. And so certainly there was a sense of guilt and shame, thinking that the crucifixion, this was the blood on their hands. And because of that, they felt like their people were reluctant to come to Jesus and acknowledge him as their Messiah. So again, there was all kinds of reason for them to be discouraged. But again, the biggest of them all is that is that their people weren't coming to Christ. This was Paul's discouragement, right? Why are, why are my kinsmen not saved? And this was their biggest plea. This was made them feel so uh, discouraged, and Paul wants to encourage them. And so like a finished carpenter in the middle of the job, Paul wants to remind them, hey, listen, I know things look like a mess right now, but God is not finished with his people, Israel. Let's read the text. We're in... Uh, Chapter 10, let's read back in verse 17, and then we'll go all the way to verse 12 of chapter 11. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me, and I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Chapter 11, verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, 
a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, for if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Again, God is not finished. Last week, if you remember, we talked about the necessity of evangelism and bringing the gospel to any and all in order that they might hear the words of Christ and the voice of Christ through the voice and the words of the preacher and respond by faith. And since faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the only thing required from us in order for us to be justified and receive the righteousness of God, all the more is it incumbent upon us to bring the gospel to people to share that good news so that they might hear and believe and be saved. That's what we talked about last week. And so building off that idea that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, as we look at the discussion this week, Paul has a set of rhetorical questions concerning Israel that's built off that foundation. Since they have not believed, what's the problem? And he asks these questions. Did they not hear? Did they not understand? And if they did understand and if they did hear but are still not saved, the question is this, well then just did God reject them? Did God kick him to the curb? Did he say, finally, I'm over you, I'm done, I can't handle you anymore? Or finally, did they stumble over the gospel in order that they might fall to destruction? In other words, was a trap set for them? Which is an interesting question. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about these questions and end with a note of encouragement to us from Paul's words to them. So the first question is this, have they not heard? In other words, did Israel not have the word of God brought to them, therefore missing that needed ingredient for faith? Did they not hear the gospel? Now, let me clarify this because I think some misread what Paul is saying here. He's not talking about those people on isolated islands who never hear. That's 
That's not the they in this passage. The they is the Israelites. That's who he is talking to. The, that conversation is what Paul already talked about in Romans chapter 1, if you want to go back and read that. Again, the they in this question is limited to the people of Israel. Have they not heard the gospel that would have given them the ability to to believe. And Paul's answer quickly and immediately, as he has done before, is indeed to say, yes, they have. In fact, he says, they heard the Word of God louder and clearer than anyone, better than any other people group in human history. And to prove this, he points to just one passage of Scripture, to Psalm 19, which if you're familiar with that psalm, it's all about the revelation of God, two forms of revelation general revelation and special revelation, which is kind of an interesting thing because, again, he's not talking about those people who know about God just from creation because he says the heavens declare the glory of God in Psalm 19, verse 1. But then as you go down to verse 7, he says, but the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So this whole psalm is all about, hey, you've heard Creation declared it, but more than that, the Word of God, the law of the Lord has made it clear to you, and they had that. So what he does with just this one subtle quotation of Psalm 19 is make a sweeping declaration. They have heard. They not only had the full measure of God's revelation in creation, but they had that special revelation through the covenants, through the prophets, through the signs and wonders. Their problem was not that they missed the memo. It wasn't that their email got stuck in their spam folder. It wasn't that the letter that was sent in the mail got lost. It wasn't that at all. They heard it. They read it. They just disobeyed it. They disobeyed it. So then the next question Paul asks and answers is this. Well, if they heard it, was their issue then just a lack of understanding? In other words, was there some misinformation? Maybe they got part of the email, but they didn't get the whole email. That would have resulted in faith. Was there misinformation on God's part that led them to lack saving faith? Or was there some inability on their part to comprehend the message of faith? In other words, were they, were they dumb? And you'll notice that Paul doesn't really give an answer like he did with the prior question. Instead, he just simply lets the Scripture speak, which is always a great thing to do. He just, let, he just quotes two Old Testament passages from the Law and the Prophets, from Moses and Isaiah. Ironically, the statement in verse 19 that he quotes is made originally by Moses, and he declares there is a people out there that don't have understanding, but it's not the Jews, it's, it's the Gentiles. So the irony with this statement, with this quotation, is that he's saying, now you, the Jews, by their lack of faith and obedience, are like those foolish people, like those people who do not understand, those non-nations that surround them, but not, again, because they lack the understanding. They did. It was something totally different. He says, it wasn't like that. It's just because you're stubborn. You're stubborn, which he makes clear in verse 21. Look at it with me. He says, all day long. God held out his hand to you. All day long, he reached out to you, to a stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious, disobedient, contrary people. It wasn't for a lack of hearing, and it wasn't for a lack of understanding. It was just because you were stubborn, stubborn people that wanted to go your own way. Now, let's just pause for a moment. Imagine this letter being read in these churches in Rome. What was going through the mind of 
his hearers and his readers, his Jewish readership. I mean, imagine if I just came up here and told all of you guys that you're stubborn, stubborn people, disobedient people, just started railing you. I mean, that's kind of what Paul is doing here. I find this fascinating because this isn't the kind of preaching that we hear in churches today, that's for sure. People couldn't stomach that kind of honesty, that kind of direct communication. And it's not that Paul is trying to offend his hearers, not at all. He's trying to wake them up through the truth. He's trying to help them see the root of the problem, that it's not a lack of all of these other things. The problem is you. The problem is your people, your inability or lack of desire to want to turn to God. This was a sobering fact about their past, about their present attitude toward God, who constantly held out His hand of mercy and kindness to them. And it wasn't like they just passively walked away from God. You know, sometimes my kids, I'll be like, hey, Olivia, can you go do this? And, and I, I, I feel like she hears me, and, and yet she just keeps doing what she's doing. And I really don't know if she is. I, I can't determine that. N- nevertheless, she's ignoring me after the fifth time I say it. So, so there's the passive walking away, but that's not what's happening here. They're actively slapping God's hand away. That's what he's saying. I reached out my hand over and over and over again, and you constantly slapped it away. That's why so many of them don't believe. It isn't because they haven't, God hasn't shown them mercy, but because they rejected it over and over and over again, which leads naturally to the third question. In the beginning of chapter 11, after this sobering gut feeling of, oh my gosh, we screwed up, they might ask, Has God then rejected his people? Have we finally pushed God to the limit where he said, I don't want to deal with you anymore? The Israelite man or woman sitting there may have wondered, man, is God finally and fully done with Israel? And Paul's fast and sure answer is the same as he's given many times before, by no means. Absolutely not. God is not finished with his people. And Paul gives three evidences for why he believes this is true. The first evidence is just personal. He refers to himself and tells them, listen, I'm I'm proof. I'm proof that God is not done with the Jews. Paul, he says, I'm from this tribe of Benjamin, a small yet prominent house in Israel, the house that the very first king of Israel, Saul, came from. His salvation, his calling was evidence to him, and he was saying it should be evidence to you. God is not done with Israel totally. He has not fully abandoned them. And then he gives a second piece of evidence, and it's both biblical and theological. Theologically, he says in verse 2, Hey, God has not rejected those people that he foreknew, which we've already talked about this word. This word means to forelove. The aspect of this word is not based on God foreseeing in the future on our part something that we do, but again, it's a, it's a look back in the past on God's decision to enter into a relationship with his elect, this remnant of faith, which is the biblical evidence Paul gives with the story of Elijah which is a fascinating story. One of the most, um, he's one of the most amazing and stunning prophets in the Old Testament. He did all of these incredible things. He stood boldly and courageously against the prophets of Baal, and he mocked them as he did it, if you know his story. But in 1 Kings 19, after doing all of these crazy things, I mean, this guy was fearless. In 1 Kings 19, at the threat of a pagan queen, Jezebel, who threatens his life, he runs and he hides in a cave. 
He's afraid for his life. And God comes to him, and I'm paraphrasing, but God asks him, Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing? And his response to God is what Paul records. Lord, they have killed your prophets. And he's talking about Israel. They've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left, and they seek my life. This is another reason why I almost titled this sermon, Johnny, It's Not Your Party. Um, Because here's Elijah focused all on himself. And because of that, he was blind and unable to see what it was that God was doing. But I, I wonder, have you ever felt that way, the way Elijah is feeling in this moment? Have you ever felt like, man, I'm like the only one here, the only one standing up for truth, the only one standing up for Jesus, the only one representing. Uh, I'm the only Christian in my school. I'm the only Christian in my workplace. So all of these things, you feel like, man, I'm the only one, because that's exactly the way Elijah felt. But it was because, really, in that moment, his faith deteriorated, and fear took control, and he started looking in on himself. And because of his lack of faith, he didn't have the vision to see what God was doing beyond himself. All he saw was his present situation, and to Elijah, it looked hopeless. And to us, sometimes, it can look hopeless as well. But then God comes and tells Elijah, listen, essentially, this isn't about you, Elijah. Oh, and by the way, you're not the only one left. Uh, In fact, I have like 7,000 people that I've reserved for myself, men who have not bowed down and worshiped the false god Baal. We've been talking the last couple weeks about this concept of the remnant, the Israel within Israel. And and that is what Paul is essentially talking about here. God had not abandoned Israel totally. Yes, Israel had killed their prophets and they had done all these wicked things, but God's like, listen, there's a remnant within Israel that I have preserved for myself. I have not totally abandoned Israel, even though many of them have rejected me. He's saying, listen, I know things look bad for Israel right now. I know it looks and feels like you're the only one who has faith in me, in God, in Jesus. But just as short-sighted as Elijah was to think that Israel is rejected now, because they aren't all coming to faith, it's just a short-sighted perspective, which leads Paul to that third piece of evidence, proving God is not done with His people, which is in verse 9. That third piece of evidence is just pastoral. He says, so too, just as God was working back then, He says, so too, at the present time, in ancient Rome, in those cities, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. He's like, even right now, even if you feel alone, You're not. Look around you. I mean, God is saving His people. The fact of the matter was, there were many Jews in Paul's day who were coming to faith in Jesus. Just because they weren't all coming to faith in Jesus didn't mean that God had abandoned all of them or that all hope is lost. And in fact, more Jews than they realized were coming to faith in Christ. But it wasn't by works. It wasn't because of who they were, per se. Instead, he says, it was by grace that they are saved. And in verse 6, Paul defines the nature of grace, that grace is only grace when it's only grace, right? Not including any work of our own. For the Jews, they needed to understand this. It wasn't about their ethnicity. It wasn't about their culture or anything within them. Instead, they needed to receive the righteousness of God in the same way that the Gentiles received it, the same way we receive it, by grace and grace alone. 
Again, friends, salvation, like Johnny, right, it's not about you. It's not earned or achieved by any one of us. Salvation is only received by faith. Faith is not acquire or attaining to something. It's, it's receiving it with the empty hands, saying, I'm, I bring nothing to this offer, God. You're the one who gives it to me. It's a free gift of grace. If you could earn it, it's not free and it's not grace. That's what Paul is saying here, which is good news really for all of us. Because that means that God didn't save you. He doesn't save anyone because of who they are. He doesn't save anyone because of what they look like or what they bring to the table, what they've done or what they haven't done. There's no prejudice. There's no partiality with God when it comes to salvation. He doesn't choose people based on their usefulness or their lack of usefulness. Instead, His choice is based in His grace and His grace alone. And we acknowledge that that is a mystery, and we'll leave that mystery with God. So what are they to make then, Paul's hearers, of ethnic Israel and their present condition of unbelief? Well, he tells them in verse, verses 10, 7 through 10, that like the unbelieving nations described in Romans 1, remember he says these people, they suppress the truth They suppressed the truth, and they did what was contrary to nature and to conscience. And what did God do to them then? He says He gave them over. Okay, fine. If you want to live that way, you go live that way, which is an act of judgment, really, to them. And that's what Paul says he did to the Jews. I've given them over. They want to reject me. They want to be stubborn. They want to just fulfill their own desires And by so doing that, their hearts got hard. Their hearts got hard. And and in that sense, God says, I hardened your heart. Because when you walked away from me, then the heart got harder and harder and harder. And he uses this cool symbol, the symbol of the table. And the table is a symbol of blessing and rest. And yet it had, in this moment, become a means of stumbling for them. I I don't know if y'all are into sci-fi, but I just recently went to see that movie Dune uh, in, in theaters right now. It's supposedly some big movie, and it really was. It was a great, great film. Uh, but there's this scene that this reminds me of where one house sort of kind of has this planet, and, and the king of this house is eating at this massive table. And there was this symbol of, I've got control. I've got power of this place. Well, spoiler alert, that king gets conquered. And the new king that comes in that conquers him is sitting at his table, eating right in front of him, right before, spoiler alert, uh, he conquers him, okay? And it's this symbol of this same table that was supposed to be a, a, a symbol of, of rest and authority and, and blessing now became a symbol of their being conquered. And that's kind of what we're, hap- what we're seeing here. And of course, this symbol comes all the way from Psalm 23, doesn't it? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. What God is now saying is the tables have turned around. You rejected me and that table that was supposed to be of, of blessing has now become a source of stumbling. And again, we're left to wonder, how can these Israelites hearing this continue to hold out hope for their own people? Does this carpenter have any idea what he's doing, this God, or is he just destroying the house? 
And it's to this that Paul offers one final question in verse 11. So I ask then, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, did God set a trap for them just to watch them fall? And of course, Paul responds as usual, by no means, and he gives an explanation for this reason, for this statement. And it's extraordinary. He says, rather, through their trespass, by their mistake, by their rebellion, God brought salvation to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass, he says, means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more, in the future sense, will their full inclusion mean? What is Paul doing here? He's using the Joseph principle. He's using the Romans 8, 28, 29 principle, and he applies it here to Israel's rebellion. You remember what Joseph said to his brothers at the end of the Genesis story after all the horrible things that they did to him? He says this, what you meant for evil against me, God meant it for good. To do what? What was the good? To save many people's lives from death and to preserve His people. And what Paul said back in chapter 8, that God is able to work all things, even our mistakes, even our screw-ups, even the horrible, evil things that we do. God is able to turn all of that around and use it for good to those who love God and are the called according to His purposes. So through their failure, though it was real, and though they alone are responsible for that, Paul is showing his readers, listen, God is not finished. Even all of that evil, you don't need to feel guilty about it. Yes, you should repent of it, but recognize that what God has done with even your failure, He can turn it around and use it for good in bringing salvation to the world. I mean, isn't this God incredible who can do something like that? Again, we're like those, those customers that I used to often uh, deal with who were struggling with seeing the big picture. And it's like, listen, God is not finished. Yes, things look like a total mess right now, but trust Him. He knows what He's doing. There's no reason to be concerned. Again, it may look bad, and, and sometimes it is bad, but it won't always be that way. God is not finished. He is not finished with His people Israel which should have instilled for them great reason for encouragement and hope for those readers. But he goes a step further. He imagines a scenario. If God is able to do this wonderful thing when they're screwing up, after they've failed, by bringing salvation to the Gentiles, just think about what God will do with their full inclusion when he does this thing in the future. And we'll talk about that more next week. But what I want to walk away with this morning is this. Again, God is not done with Israel. And, and let me be clear, this is not to say that God has some unique sort of side project with Israel, with the Jews that's separate from the church. It's all together. The promises that God made to Israel in the past, in the Old Testament, were and are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in His work, when His kingdom was inaugurated in His coming, but we are waiting for that consummation in His second coming, the kingdom consummation. But still, God is not finished with Israel. And in fact, we see the evidence of that today, don't we? In our own day, we see the present-day existence of this nation of Israel. I find it fascinating, and I hope you do too, that there is not a people group on this planet 
that today that has survived the trials and tribulations that the Jewish people have. And they continue to remain a people. I mean, think about how marvelous that is, how divine that is. In the ancient world, when a nation would conquer another nation, there was both a natural and intentional assimilation. They wanted to destroy that nation and remove that identity of that people group. And when assimilation happened, that identity was lost forever, but not for the Jews. They were conquered over and over and over again, and yet they continue to remain a people. What is the explanation of that? That God preserved His people throughout His history. When people ask me, and we'll end with this, when people ask me to prove God's existence, how do you know God exists? I usually have five evidences, and if you want to write these down, you can. But first is creation. We've talked about this. If there is a creation, then logic tells me, science tells me, that there must be a creator. And what that tells me is that this creator must be powerful, he must be beautiful, he must be wise and purposeful and personal. We can know him because we're personal. So creation tells me, his word tells me, I believe that the Bible proves God's existence, the fact that there's this ancient word that has survived for thousands of years and has remained preserved for us. But not only that, what it teaches proves that God exists. Jesus, above all things, proves the existence of God, the historical person, Jesus. He came here to prove that God exists and to show us what He was like. The virgin birth, the miracles, his teachings, his divine claims, including his resurrection, these all prove that God exists. The church is another proof. In the early church and throughout the church's 2,000-year history, people have come to know and believe in God because of the witness of his people. When they see us, they should see God must exist, right? This is what Paul declares in 1 Corinthians, that when non-believers come among you, they should declare they have truly been with God, been with Jesus. God is among them. Now, of course, people have also looked at the church and thought there's no way God could exist, and the church should repent of those things, and yet at the same time, the church testifies to God's existence. And then finally, what I bring to is personal, the fact that God intervened in my life, and it's true in your life. You know God exists because He, he came in, He incarnated Himself to you, and He spoke to you and revealed that He is real. But I think if I was to add a sixth evidence from my normal list, I would say Israel proves the existence of God. From the days of Abraham to our present day, the story of this people is proof positive that there is divine activity and preservation over the Jews. So let me just remind you that when you feel alone like Elijah did, when you feel hopeless and helpless, remember what God told Elijah. What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? You're not alone. Stop wallowing in this self-pity as if you are alone. There are far more people than you realize because it's not up to you. It's up to God and what He is doing. And then second, God's not finished. That's the point of it all. Trust the potter. Trust the carpenter. He knows what He is doing. 
And it's going to take longer than you realize. There's more steps than you would like to see in the process. Things may look like a mess right now, and they probably are a mess right now. But there is this beautiful thing, this beautiful work that God is doing. And the big reveal, the big reveal will come, and it will be a glorious reveal. Until then, we pray, Lord, come quickly. Lord, come quickly. Why don't we pray, and then we'll have a time of communion together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in so many ways. And thank you that this revelation is not just some news out there, but it changes our lives, and it has changed our lives. And we give you thanks that you're not done with us. Just as you're not done with your people, Israel, you're not done with us here in this room, that we are a a work in progress, and you are doing work through us as well in the lives of other people. Help us to not get discouraged like Elijah did in that moment or fearful, and not see by faith all the great and wonderful things that you are doing in our midst. And so, God, we just ask for the eyes of Christ and the eyes of faith to continue to walk with you. In the power of your spirit, we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.